Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Literary Studies on the New Books Network. I'm Petal Samuel, the co-host of the channel. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Literary Studies on the New Books Network. I'm Petal Samuel, the co-host of the channel. And today I will be talking with Sarah Shulman about her book, Conflict is Not Abuse, Overstating Harm, Community Responsibility, and the Duty of Repair, published by Arsenal Pulp Press. Sarah is a distinguished professor of English at the College of Staten Island, where she teaches courses on fiction writing and is a prolific novelist, playwright, filmmaker, and author of six nonfiction works, of which Conflict is Not Abuse is the latest. Thank you, Sarah, for joining me today to talk about your latest book. Thank you. Uh, So you opened the book by talking about three crucial examples of people who, in your words, overreact to difference. And also you uh, describe this as conflating discomfort with threat and mistaking internal anxiety for exterior danger. And so the three examples you offer are the police killings of Eric Garner and Michael Brown, Uh, Ray Rice's abuse of his wife and the Israeli siege of Palestine. And so as a way to get at the origins of the project, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how you began thinking of instances like these together under the frame of overstating harm. And were there any key aha moments, conversations or experiences that stand out in your memory? Well, I wrote a book in the uh, early aughts that took 10 years to get a publisher uh, called Ties That Bind, Familial Homophobia and Its Consequences. And this, in this book, I analyze the homophobic family as a group. And I realized that the homophobic family, when they blame or exclude the queer family member, they feel elevated by that experience. It makes them bond with each other and they feel good about themselves. They feel like they are superior. And that this, I realized, was what I later called a negative group relationship. So that was sort of my first in into how these kinds of false loyalties contribute to escalating um, scapegoating. Then a few years later, I published a book called Israel-Palestine and the Queer International. And this was, oh, sorry about that. That's me. That's okay. And um, this was a book that really addressed how I had been trained to think about Israel and Zionism, having been born Mm. in 1958. Right. And realizing that I needed to undo a lot of the conditioning that my family and I had had. And so in this case, I realized that the group, the, my understanding of group dynamics that I had developed from looking at familial homophobia applied completely to the Israeli state and their, not only their supremacist ideology, but also the way that they were constantly describing themselves as victims. Mm-hmm. They were under threat or that they were under right. attack when actually they had the power. Right. I saw that there was a parallel between the homophobic family and the militarized nation state. And that's where those connections started to be born. Right. Well, I I remember um, you mentioning to me that your work on the homophobic family at the time, uh, it was very difficult for you to get that work published. Is that correct? Yes. It took 10 years, actually, for it to be published. Wow. So, okay, so this this actually makes me curious about um, your work in general's um, journey to publication, but but this book in particular, not just the process of finding a publisher, but as you reference in the book, kind of presenting parts of the book in progress to audiences. So I guess um, I have, it's sort of a two-pronged question. So I guess mm-hmm. the first question is, 
what was the process of finding a publisher for this book like? And did you face any similar challenges to the ones you faced with your previous works? And the second question is, what was your sense of the book's audience? And how, if if at all, did your experience of workshopping the book's concepts with various audiences sort of shape your sense of its audience? Okay, so let's start with publication. So Conflict is Not okay. a Beast was almost impossible to publish. I could not publish it in the United States, as a matter of fact. Oh and it was rejected by every level of publisher. Um, if In terms of commercial publishers, there were younger people um, on the bottom of the hierarchy who supported the book, but they couldn't get their bosses to approve of it. Uh, university presses right. who have published me significantly in the past suddenly said no because I don't have credentials in any of the official mm. disciplines, but I didn't have credentials in the other books that they published either. Leftist presses, I had a terrible experience with uh, Verso books, who kind of oh. lied to me for about a year, and then mm. you know, it just ended up that they were obviously not going to publish it. Right. So um, it became clear that nobody right. would publish it. And I then went to um, Arsenal Pulp Press, which is a queer publisher in Vancouver, Canada, mm-hmm. that is partially supported by Canadian government funds. Mm. And they published it. And because they had government money, they were able to send me on tour which an American publisher, a comparable publisher, would not have been able to do. So the question is, why would no one in the United States publish it? Right, right. I don't think that they even understood why they were turning it down. But I think it's because Mm -hmm. AIDS and Palestine are areas of such Mm. anxiety in the United States that the fact that I was using them as examples of a larger question was something that was just for people to be able to deal with. They see them as very discreet, private subject matter for which there can only be one book that's about only that. But to connect Palestine Mm. or AIDS to uh, the ways we treat our friends or our family members, that was was more than they Mm -hmm. grasped. Now, what was interesting is even though it was published by a very small press, it has done extremely well. Right. So the book is, is in five, went in five to five printings in its first year, and I had audiences that were larger wow. than I've ever had in my life. And, you know, the question mm-hmm. is, how did that happen? And that's also very mm-hmm. interesting because almost every book I've published has been reviewed by Publishers Weekly or by Kirkus, mm-hmm. these kind of pre-publication magazines. But none of them reviewed Conflict is Not Abuse. Right. It, the only and it had no mainstream reviews. The reason mm-hmm. it caught on was because of things like Goodreads and Facebook. Ah. And oh wow! People were reading it at a very grassroots level, and people who had credibility on a grassroots level but are not right. recognized by the corporations, those people were recommending it, mm-hmm. and it got to such a a pitch that actually Publishers Weekly did review it five months after publication and they gave it a starred review because they had to review it because they were talking about it so much. And what's interesting now is that the phrase conflict is not abuse has now entered the lexicon. I, you know, I recently saw that someone in the parliament in the UK used it casually, you know, to make a point I'm seeing, I you look, Oh my gosh. People use it all the time, not referring to my book. It's really um, something that has resonated with a lot of people. Right. This is so interesting because this is uh, this is actually how I found the book because I was on Twitter and I follow, you know, all these various, um, you know, scholars, activists, so on, on Twitter and I just came across a couple tweets of a scholar saying everyone should read this book. This book is so incredible. And so that's that, I mean, that speaks to my experience of how I came to this text, actually. Yeah, that's how most people come to it. And what's been interesting is that I've now been invited to speak in, you know, in places that I was never invited before. Like, I spoke at the British Columbia Nurses Union Convention. Mm -hmm. I spoke at a black anti-gentrification conference in Portland, Oregon, at a a Presbyterian seminary in Denver. It's like every social group has this problem 
of Mm -hmm. people who are perpetrators describing themselves as victims, Mm -hmm. people who are um, oppositional being repositioned as dangerous and being Mm -hmm. scapegoated. And then normal right. normal conflict between people being escalated mm-hmm. to incredible levels of accusation because people simply cannot tolerate being uncomfortable. I And I also wonder with, I'm still thinking through what you've said about um, not being able to get the book published in the States and what that might have to do with your commentary on the, conf- the Israel-Palestine conflict. And in some ways it, it, I wonder what this might have to do with this sort of um, progress, U.S. progress narrative, where there are certain kinds of social ills that the U.S. understands itself as having overcome by now and, and having pa- got, you know, gone past. And there are others that are that kind of feel like they're of our present moment that are still kind of unresolved. And so I wonder if part of what is happening is that your book is highlighting um, one, the the sort of un, unresolvedness of these issues that the U S um, imagines that it has, it, it has gone past while, um, you know, highlighting, um, you know, the ways that it continues to um, support and perpetrate, um, you know, oppression globally, you know, um, in ways that it has in the past. So your book is sort of not allowing the U.S. to um, kind of, you know, deploy this narrative of forward moving progress. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if, if that maybe is part of. Well, I'm um, not sure. Because I think that that, that whole thing that you're talking about, the claims of being post-racial and all of that, I think that mm-hmm. really belongs to the neoliberal society that we were living in before the last election. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my, the book came out two weeks before Trump was elected. And since he's been elected, I think it's clear that there's an, you never see anyone making claims that we are in a progressive society anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. But what's also interesting is that so many people are under attack now. Right. Uh, there are a lot of connections being made. I mean, an appropriate level of resistance has not occurred, and the kind of movement that we need has not come to be. But mm-hmm. at the foundations, you know, we can see, like, um, Black for Palestine, for example. Right. You know, and we're seeing, and in terms of Palestine, we're seeing student organizations. I think Students for Justice in Palestine is on, I believe, 48 campuses now. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're usually being targeted for different kinds of scapegoating, but they are there. So, right. since, you know, uh, queer right. people are increasingly po- pro-Palestinian. There was an uproar at the last um, National Gay Task Force convention because mm-hmm. uh, some Zionists have been invited to speak. So that mm-hmm. is clearly on the table. Black leaders, there have been a qu- quite a few delegations. Black Lives Matter manifesto mentions Palestine in its, you know, initial mm-hmm. statement. Um, we're seeing really mainstream Protestant churches mm. coming out for Palestine and for di- and supporting boycott divestment sanctions. So the thing about America is that change happens in the margins; it never happens in the center. Right. I, I think there has been a, a real increase in terms of the foundations and in terms of Jews. You know, I'm on the advisory board to Jewish Voice for Peace, which is the largest Jewish uh, anti-occupation mm-hmm. group in the United States, and. We now have 13,000 members, which is quite large. Wow. Mm-hmm. So I think support for Palestine is growing. The problem is that we, we don't know where the tipping point is. You know, at what point mm-hmm. will right. this, these connections actually affect U.S. policy? And certainly as, we're to spe- as you and I are speaking, people are being murdered and, you know, unarmed people are being murdered in Gaza. It's been going on for three weeks. Right. 5,000 people have been shot and right. they've been killed. And the the, the the world is saying nothing, you know, mm-hmm. so that so obviously nothing has changed on the ground there. Right, right, right. Um, so I'm thinking through um, what you mentioned about, um, well, what you just mentioned about these um coalitions that have been coalitions between such as Black Students for Palestine um, 
and um, Jews for Peace in Palestine. And um, I, it's, it's making me think um, perhaps tangentially about your note about being undisciplined in your, in your book. Mm-hmm. And um, this is really fascinating to me as well, coming from a Black Studies perspective, because we're constantly having to struggle against disciplinarity in our own ways, um, you know, because the methods of the traditional disciplines are, you know, often not not sufficient for the kinds of inquiries that, that we're wanting to make. And, um, and also, I was compelled by your discussion of how, um, as a novelist, the creation of characters that have integrity energized this book. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a bit more about how creative writing opened up a space for this project and how um, how being undisciplined has freed you to work in ways that you might not be able to work as an academic or and conversely, if it's presented any particular challenges. Well, one thing is I don't have to prove anything. Right. So I don't use fo- footnotes. Right. You know, so I'm just speculating and mm-hmm. I just, I'm able to have a free flow of imagination and ideas. Right. Um, and I do invite the reader at the beginning to not believe everything that I say. I mean, it would be mm-hmm. impossible to agree with every idea in this book. There's like a lot of ideas here. Right. And some of them are better mm-hmm. than others, you know, but you don't have to agree with everything to get something out of it. So by saying at the beginning that I know that there's, you know, I don't expect anyone to agree with everything. I'm sort of inviting people to, instead of doing what we do now, which is look for any possible way to do a critique that shows that we're better than the person because we found some flaw. And, you know, that's our orientation right now. Yeah. And so things that are actually have value get dismissed because because mm-hmm. a human being wrote them. And so there's, you know, contradictions. Mm-hmm. But if we could actually enjoy things and enjoy ideas that work for us um, without, you know, completely trashing somebody uh, because they say other things we don't like, we can get a lot more out of it. And that's a good model for human relationships as well. Right, right. So that's freed me. In terms of writing nonfiction as a novelist, you know, when you're creating a character in a novel, we do some, and it's the same thing is true in a play. A character does something we call playing the positive. That is, mm-hmm. everyone does what they do because they think it's going to make their life better right now. You know, right. nobody does anything because they think it's going to make their life worse right now. So people say, well, if I just mm-hmm. shoot this heroin right now, I'm going to feel better right now. Mm-hmm. You know, so even bad people or people with destructive agendas they, they feel as a human, because they are human, that what they're doing is somehow going to make them feel better right now. And if we can understand that, mm-hmm. it helps us get a lot more insight. You know, I, I think I'm very psychological in the way mm-hmm. I approach the way humans create society. Yeah. And it gives us a lot of, I think, a lot more insight. I was very influenced by um, mid-century psychoanalysts. And I, and I have a section on Edith mm-hmm. Weiner as an example, but it's broad. Right who were Jewish refugees from Europe who were forced out by the fascists, but who had wishes that they could treat fascists. And that when you Mm -hmm. ask them, what do you, and this was very common for that group, they wanted to teach fascists that you don't have to act on your feelings, so you can separate feelings from actions. And this is something that would be very helpful to the police in our country. Right. They feel anxiety right. when they see black people because they're racist, right? Their anxiety is internal, but they they externalize it and claim that they're in danger. Mm-hmm. And then they kill people. Right. But the, to be able to recognize a feeling of anxiety and to have a process of understanding right. where it comes from and why you feel it can free you from being compelled to the action of destruction. Right. Right. This reminds me of what you said in the book uh, that understanding what happened is more important than producing a victim. That's correct. If we have a fight with somebody or a conflict with somebody, Mm -hmm. if our goal is to understand ourselves, to avoid future conflicts or to be able to resolve them, then we look at it very Mm -hmm. differently than if our goal is to prove that we're right and then hurt the other person. 
The trajectories are quite different. Right, 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 right. Right. Because there's one of the really thought-provoking and moving um, uh, sort of um, challenges that you present in the book is um, for us to, you know, rethink our relationship to calling the police. And you talk at, you know, um, at great length about how the sort of punitive power of the state has taken place of community arbitration and and reconciliation and so on and so forth. And so there's this moment where you ask, um, well, kind of two two um, um, challenges, uh, challenging questions that you ask. One is, given that we know punishment doesn't work in terms of reducing or deterring crime or rehabilitating the perpetrator, why why do we still seek it? And that we may need to confront um, our own sense that what we want in the moment of um, calling the police is not um, restoration for either the for either of us, but but that we may want to see someone um, be punished because we understand that that is the appropriate that's the logical next step in a conflict that there we must produce a victim and that person must be punished. And so it's um, it's it's made me really curious about how we have become how and why we've become um so um, how the punitive have be- has become so normalized rather than the reparative. Well, I think that there's a history to this moment. You know, uh, for example, right. I, was, I was born in New York City in 1958. And in 1958, if a wo- woman was raped, she could not get a conviction unless she had a witness. Right. Her testimony alone was not enough, right? right. Mm-hmm. Well, in the 60s, when the feminist movement against violence first emerges, it's in a context in which the state is literally the enemy of women. <clears throat> I mean, there were hardly any women in the state. You know, there were not that many women lawyers, certainly not judges, congresspeople. Right. So and also because that feminist movement emerged in a time of global liberation movements, whether they were anti-colonial or black power, or gay liberation movements that were that we're theorizing radical ways of transforming how we relate to each other mm-hmm. at that movement early on did not look to the state for solutions. And what's interesting when you look at their documents, you see that the early feminist movement against violence attributed male violence to three things, patriarchy, poverty, and racism. So they saw right. it as structural right. And what's interesting is that they did not advocate for the for punishing men. They were not asking the state mm. to come in and punish men. They're focused right. on empowering women because right. they didn't have a trust relationship with the state. So a lot of their solutions mm-hmm. were what we now call restorative justice, even though that term didn't exist at the time. So, for example, abortion was illegal and people created illegal abortion underground networks. Or right. they taught self-defense classes. Or they had rape crisis hotlines. If mm-hmm. you were raped, you could call a number and a woman who had been raped could answer the phone and you could talk to her. All of these mm-hmm. bypassed the state. Right. But what happened was the demand for these services was enormous, much more than a volunteer uh, you know, sector could provide. And so in the 70s, there was a program right. called CETA where the Mm -hmm. government paid the salaries of directors of grassroots organizations. But when Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980, and that's really D-Day for a lot of the problems that we're having now, uh, one of the first things he did was eliminate CETA. So a lot of these programs fell apart because they had become dependent on Mm -hmm. federal funding. And you watch through the 80s how the government took over a lot of these services. So you start to see them bureaucratized, they're dependent on federal funding. The people who work in them have to have credentials uh, that are determined by the by the state. And the enforcers of these new laws are the police. Now, this creates a crisis in meaning because, first of all, the U.S. government is one of the greatest sources of violence in the world. So to put them in charge mm-hmm. of ending violence doesn't work. Right, really of course. But the police, not only are the police racist and violent, but actually... The vocation police officer is the job in America that has the highest rate of domestic violence of any job, including NFL Mm -hmm. player. So Mm -hmm. the police are the last people 
who right. can solve a problem. Right. You know, so, and we see it all the time on the news. This person's having a fight with their son. They call the police. The police come. They kill the son. We see this over and over again. But what's also right. interesting right. is that in the zeitgeist, at the same time, there was a public propaganda for this structure where you see shows like Law and Order Special Victims Unit mm-hmm. started in the 80s. And this was right. week after week. We're, we're shown pure, innocent victim, evil total predator and the solution is the police Mm -hmm. right so there's been a big move away from the idea that people through self-criticism and negotiation can solve some of their problems and this idea that that's impossible and the Mm -hmm. only way we solve it are the state by -hmm. picking out individuals and incarcerating them or punishing them so now when people call the police there's a lot of interesting things going on you know one is and i think we saw this in the starbucks case For white people, calling the police on black people is almost like a form of entertainment at this point because they know what's going to happen. Right. You know, so there's that element. But there's also a performance, a performance of victimhood. I am so victimized and I am so helpless that I have no choice but to call the police. Right. When, of course, a person often a person has other choices. Right. I, I cite a lot the work of social worker Catherine Hodes, who points out that, um, you know, because the, the mechanisms for punishment are so faulty, increasingly mm-hmm. perpetrators are the first to call the police. Right, right, and right. They're the ones who initiate lawyer letters, who, who try to uh, who threaten or actually obtain restraining orders. All of these things have become tools of control. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm beginning to see this enter um, the public lexicon in some ways. And because I was just reading um, an article yesterday about um, Amber J. Phillips, who's this kind of black woman, um, a feminist organizer and um, kind of social media um, and podcast host and so on. And so she um, got into um, an argument with a white woman on an American Airlines flight because, um, um, and it was a, it was an argument over um, her arm touching the other woman's arm. So it was a sense that she wasn't staying in her own space and so on and so forth. And then what the flight attendant does when they land is, is call the police. And so I saw a lot of respond uh, responses to that article with people saying, um, you should you should know better than to call the police. You know what happens when the police come um, in response to an accusation against a black person. And so I'm beginning to see some of that mm-hmm. um, enter slowly, sort of enter the public lexicon, which is is helpful. Right, because the real but, problem there is that the white woman doesn't know how to share. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And Amber identifies this as, of course, racism, fat phobia, and all these sorts of things that are, you know, that are happening. And of course, what she reports, and which made me think about your work, what she says is she reports it as an assault, mm-hmm. when in fact, it was it really merely was their arms touching. And, and then, you know, and of course, the, the police, you know, um, don't ask Amber for her account of what happened. So there, there's just, um, it escalates very, very quickly with this overstatement of harm and with the calling of the police. Right. Because the reason people claim that they're being abused or assaulted or whenever, when actually the problem is they can't share, is that um, it becomes a smoke right. screen that of escalation so that they right. don't have to face and themselves in a self-critical way. And exactly. then you get the larger question is why can't people face themselves in a self-critical way? Mm-hmm. And I, and I, Catherine Hodes addresses this and I go into this in the book, you know, that because we have a bar that says you're only eligible for compassion if you are a complete and total victim. Right. If you say that you are participating in escalating or creating a problem, then you don't get any support from your negative group that you're in. You know, and we're all in these, in, whether it's families or cliques, cliques are such an important factor in all of this. You know, so often people will say like, well, you, somebody broke up with you and the people in their clique will never speak to you again. And they think that that is loyalty. Right. But actually right, right. it's, it causes incredible division and pain. 
And what a healthy clique does is that they help their members negotiate and they give people support for being self-critical. And I wonder with eligibility for compassion, that was a really um, striking uh, moment in the book for me because um, it, it is this the sense that if you are not able to to successfully and sort of exclusively position yourself as a victim in a conflict, you know, in a sort of victim perpetrator uh, dichotomy, then, you know, you're not eligible for compassion and, you know, nuance is not permitted because it means that you're not, um, um, you're not really a victim because. Exactly. Right. I so do this, it, it, you know, no, I do this compare. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I was just oh, c- curious about, you know, how, um, what are some ways that um, we can begin to sh- shift this, um, this, where does this idea, this sense that um, you're only eligible for compassion if you're um, the, a victim in a, in a particular conflict? And, and how do we begin to shift the sense that you, you have to prove your eligibility for compassion? Well, you know, I, I attribute this to the negative group, that we're in right. groups that define loyalty by hurting people and not by people. And I I do a comparative study in the book where I look at four different systems that are really very different from each other, Uh, mid-century psychoanalysis, Mm -hmm. contemporary psychiatry, and also pop psychology, um, uh, mindfulness, and Al-Anon. And I Mm -hmm. put these systems next to each other. And they're so different. But what I found is that they they all actually make the same two suggestions. Mm -hmm. One is delay, right? They all recommend delay, you know, instead of writing someone a mean email and pressing send, if you call them Mm -hmm. and make an appointment to get along to get together with them, so you can tell them how you feel, you're going to be a lot more reasonable, and you're going to be able to communicate. So delay, especially delay before punishment, is very important. And the other thing that they all agree on is positive group. You know, whether it's the meditation group, whether it's the Al-Anon meeting, whether it's the relationship with the therapist, wherever it is, everybody needs a positive group in their life that encourages them to be self-critical and to negotiate. It's really our job as, as bystanders as relatives, as friends, mm-hmm. show the people in our lives that we expect them to negotiate. And we're not going to go around hurting people just because they tell us to. I mean, I am amazed at how often I'm asked to hurt somebody. You know, they'll say mm-hmm. like, why are you working with her? Right. Why are you talking to that person? Why did you invite this person? You know, right. you're always being pressured to shun people. Now, I held right, a right, right. meeting in Montreal with Morgan Page, who is a writer who at that time was living in Montreal. And the subject was trans and queer suicide, which, as you know, is epidemic. Right. I had like 200 people for about three hours. It was an amazing conversation. And one of the things that was very clearly produced by that conversation was that when people, especially people who have been, lost their families because of their queerness or their transness, when they are shunned by friends, they feel like they want to kill themselves. It's 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 an t- right. incredibly destructive, cruel mm-hmm. action for communities to shun people. Right. And you know, then the question also is, where are these people supposed to go? Right. You know, that's why when you look at questions of sexual abuse on on um, elite and ruling class campuses. I think that, for example, you know, when there's a gray zone question and you have a school like Columbia that has enormous resources, to simply expel somebody, Mm -hmm. all you're doing is kicking them out of the country club of the gated community of the Ivy League. And you're letting them loose in the world of women who don't have any of those kinds of protections. Instead, we as a society must confront the male abuser. The male offender is a huge social problem. Mm. We can't just say we're going to incarcerate and expel everybody. So a very well-resourced university is a very good place to try to actually deal with the male offender and understand what's motivating them. Because when you look at studies um, and talk to people who are working in this field, 
a lot of people, you know, there always will be a small percentage of people who are real predators. That is to say, they Mm -hmm. enjoy breaking other people's will. But there's a large number of people who are in a gray zone. They don't understand how people get from A to B in sexual relationships. They're confused by media images of women. They're confused by how young women present themselves. There's a lot of confusion there. And women have it too. And so clarification is much more helpful than punishment. Right, 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 right. Well, I'm so I'm glad that when you mentioned um, how often you're being asked to harm someone, I it it really made me think of this moment when you're talking about the discussion of the uh, when you're talking about the spreading of rumors and how it can work to organize group shunning and this is it's prompted me to think more deeply about academia which which is a space that um can rely somewhat heavily on the rumor mill um in in a number of ways and so i'm thinking for instance of um you know grad students who learn which professors not to work with not to take classes with from other students and professors who will tell you stories about you know who is unsupportive who is harsh who is vindictive um and then in other cases women in particular in academia who learn from others which of their colleagues have some sort of record of being um inappropriate accused of sexual misconduct and and so on and so because the harmful behavior of powerful people um, so often goes unrecognized and unpunished in, in academia and in workplaces in general. People who are in vulnerable positions often end up relying on the rumor mill to protect themselves. But of course, we don't always know the source of a rumor and we may not, you know, but we may not feel protected enough to check the rumor out with the subject of the rumor. So I guess I'm wondering if you can help me think through this a bit. So how, well, how do well, there's we... a dichotomy of power there? So real abuse is underrecognized. Right. And conflict is overstated. And so we're in a situation right. like if you look at the, the national cataclysm of our country right now. We have a situation where, for example, the white working class, the globalization of their jobs was created by the white percent, one percent. Right. But they're told to blame immigrants right. who have absolutely nothing to do with it. Right. And they're being constantly told over and over again that these people from El Salvador or these Muslims from seven Muslim countries, they are the source of your problem. Right. You know, and, and it's the same. I mean, right. as you can imagine, I had a whole Twitter verse, uh, you know, universe filled with negative things when this book right before this book came out. People say things like, Shulman is a known abuser. She punched her girlfriend in the face and broke her nose. Now, I've never hit anyone in my life, and I say it in the book, that I've never committed an act of violence. And there was no one out there saying that I had ever hit them. Mm-hmm. It was just logical, because that's how people go. That's where people go when they want to discredit something that's too uncomfortable right. to and that's why we're facing this this Muslim right. man right now, you know, that's right before the Supreme Court as we are talking, even though there's absolutely no justification for it. Most terrorism in the United States is uh, committed by white males who are born in the United mm-hmm. States. Right. We, we understand that. And, and I'm right. amazed that the Supreme Court um, arguments have not introduced that material. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So there, there is this, um, you do mention this in the text that we live in a culture and in your words, a culture of underreaction to abuse and overreaction to conflict. Mm -hmm. And so for you, separating out overstatement of harm from harm itself, you say is necessary in order to retain the legitimate protections and recognitions afforded the experience of actual violence and real oppression. Right. Right. So there's a move to, um, you know, um, that so you're careful about clarifying that your primary interest is in um, the ways that powerful people and entities appropriate the language of abuse and and overstate harm um, in order to justify their own extreme punitive measures and that you're not, for instance, looking to call forth this sort of false specter of the lying assault victim or, you know, or. um, um, I'm interested in why Donald Trump every day tells us that it's a witch hunt. Right. 
Right. Right. When it's, we know it's not true and that he's actually conducting a witch hunt on people who haven't done anything. That's, that's the construction that I'm examining. Right. 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 So, so I'm actually, this makes me think of this moment in the conclusion where you tell this story about um, where you're giving a talk and there's a woman in the audience who um, is an assault survivor and has this moment of, of sort of mis- misreading what you're saying. And then you have this um, dialogue about and it, it clears up, which is something that you note importantly happened because the conversation was happening in person. Mm-hmm. And um, but I'm actually really curious about these moments of misreading where mm-hmm. um you know, where, for instance, your calls to rethink our reliance on the police to arbitrate conflict gets misread, as it did in the anecdote, as a call to allow abusers to remain unpunished or something like that. And so I'm curious, what for you have been some of the most troublesome misreadings of this work, in your view, and what is producing those moments? Well, one is that people think that I'm telling people who have been abused that it's okay, or that there's no such thing as abuse or like they'll say like um, they'll, they'll describe an example of really horrific abuse and act like I'm saying that that person should be forgiven. I'm not, that's not what I'm involved in. Right. Right. You know, I, I'm what I, where my concerns are is that we have scapegoating at every level now of human interaction and that the Mm -hmm. private realm is replicating the governmental tactic mm-hmm. and involving the government, in fact, right. and that there's no, there's no separation. Um, I just want to talk about, I mean, you're raising this thing about why do people change what you're saying so that they can disagree with it. Right. And right. There's a lot of reasons for that. Right. 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 So one is because what you're actually asking them to do is in a sense, be self-critical. Right. Examine their own perspective. And one of, I mean, I think one of the best insights mm-hmm. in this book is that there's a parallel experience between people who are supremacists and people who are traumatized. Mm-hmm. And that in both cases, there's a refusal of a certain kind of self criticism, but for different reasons. So that, you know, supremacists right, right, right. are raised to believe that no one else has the right to ever doubt them right. and that they never be questioned and they certainly should never be ever have to feel uncomfortable which is how they would feel if they question themselves so right. if you agree with them or right. you question them or they feel uncomfortable then they think you're abusing them and they're under attack right right traumatized there, there's a similar process which mm-hmm. is that sometimes we feel so fragile mm-hmm. and it's so hard to just keep it together that being asked to be right. self-critical on top of that feels impossible and so someone else just being different feels mm-hmm. like an enormous assault and attack. Right. You know, and, and that's the distortion there. Right. So that's, that's one of the factors. And the other is, you know, the famous trigger, which I address in the book. And I define a trigger as right. when we have unresolved pain from the past that we blame on the present. Mm-hmm. So that something happens in the present that re- reminds us of our unresolved pain from the past. And we lash out at the present because of that pain that the present did not create. And that's often what, what these types of constructions are about. When you say something that really matters and that could really elevate a relationship or a group and somebody changes it into something that they can dismiss because it's just too difficult for them to face pain from the past. Right. Yeah. And you mentioned that it's it feels like there's not much room to have this conversation with a person who is traumatized because it it very quickly becomes um, victim blaming or it it very, um, you know, quickly becomes uh, construed as, um, you know, um, disbelief or discrediting or um, or lack of compassion and. And so on. Right. But actually, it's giving the person a way out of a certain kind of pain. Because if you had a practice of when that happens, the people around them could say, I see that you're in pain. We all see that you are in pain. We recognize that. 
What's happening right. here is not the thing that costs your pain. So mm-hmm. let's all be here with you. Right. And think about this another way. Instead of kicking the person out or, you know, kicking the speaker out, you know, there's usually right. some kind of exclusion or shunning that is used in those situations. Right. And this goes back to what you were saying about sort of negative group loyalty and so on and the, the, the role of language. And so there are certain um, certain um, words that, you know, signal that you cannot you, sh- you should not ask questions about what has happened. Mm-hmm. And that so, you know, for instance, if a person says that, um, this person was abusive. This person is violent. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't mention this word explicitly in the book, but something that comes to mind just from personal experience is the, the language of toxicity. So this person is toxic. Mm-hmm. And it's not always clear what that, what that means, but it is clear in the moment that um, – it, your role the, or what feels like um, the way to um, be loyal to the person or the way to support the person is to not ask questions about what happened and so on, because you don't want to um, give the impression, you know, you don't want to um, uh, appear to the person as though, or, or doubt that the person's experience of what happened is real and mm-hmm. and then that can create um, um, shunning and and so on as a condition of of loyalty. well, I do address the use of the word violent, and I, I yes. there's two things that I say about it. One is that something that is not violent can be more devastating than mm-hmm. something that is violent. Right. So we're currently using the word violent to mean that it's devastating. But I am recommending that we only use the word violent to mean physical violence so that we know what we're talking about when we use the word. We're not using it metaphorically. Right. While understanding that things that are not violent can be even more horrible. Right. Right. Yeah. This. So um, this is uh, giving me a way to think through. Um, the because you have a, a moment in the text where you you are also thinking about because um, I've heard the language of violence used um, in ways to talk about spaces like the classroom mm-hmm. and particularly to um, in calls for the classroom to be a safe space and that's a concept that you're um, critical of in the text. I wonder if you could say a bit about. Um, what kind of brought you to those ideas of questioning the the classroom as a safe space? Well, you know, I while all kinds of terrible things happen in classrooms, I've certainly been in very sexist and racist and homophobic classrooms. The classroom is not usually not a site of physical assault. Right. And so we we most of us know that when we go into a classroom, the worst thing that can happen is that we can be uncomfortable. And this discomfort is an opportunity. Mm-hmm. We know that we can be uncomfortable without physical violence. And it gives us a chance to grapple with things that we don't have any other place in life to grapple with. So to have students unresolved pain from the past determine that certain things cannot be grappled with is losing an opportunity that the classroom provides. Right. Right. I mean, right. I quote Sarah Ahmed on this. You know, mm-hmm. she, she had the insight um, in her incredible book on, I think it's called The Purpose of Happiness, uh, that it is impossible in a healthy world to never be uncomfortable. The only way you can never be uncomfortable is if other people are severely repressed. Right. But if, but if people have freedom of expression, everyone will be uncomfortable. And so being uncomfortable is a desirable state. But one of the demands of kind of right. um, a privilege is to never be uncomfortable. Right. And, right. and people, you know, and that's, that's, I think, what's leading that sort of movement of repression in the classroom. Right. And, and I, and you, because I hear this language of the safe space, safe space in the classroom also used expressly for what you're saying to, you know, um, 
to say um, you have to sort of warn students before you talk about race in the classroom. So the la- so the language is is being used in some ways to um, um, and the language of you know. Um, conversations about race, sexuality, so on, as, you know, quote, difficult conversations that you have to prep students for, um, that um, it resonates with what you say about um, the language of the safe space being appropriated by, um, you say, those of us who have become dominant to continue to use this trope to repress otherness Mm -hmm. and to defend against the discomfort of hearing other people's realities, which then gets uh, represented as, um, you know, a kind of violence or the space is no longer safe and and so on. Right, because your students are experiencing racism Um, outside the classroom and they're experiencing all kinds of violence in their families and everywhere. So to think that the only place they're ever going to hear about this is the classroom is absurd, although the classroom may be the only place where they can actually process it. Right. Right. Um, So I was drawn to your discussion about communicating through email and text um, and the sort of obstructive walls that um, sort of appear um, in email and text that don't allow for the kind of bilateral communication or nuance that results from talking on the phone or in person. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but I'm curious though about social media. So Facebook and Twitter in particular, and th- they've become these spaces increasingly become these spaces where people are having um, a wide range of conversations and where conflicts are playing out and there's a sort of conventional wisdom uh, amongst, you know, at least in my circles about uh, the genre of the Facebook argument or Twitter argument, where there's a sense that it never results in mutual understanding. It always escalates. It ends with blocking. And and so in some ways, it, it feels as though social media uh, presents some of the same challenges that email and text do in in the sense of it being impersonal and you can't assess tone and you may not know the person that you're engaging with very well. Um, But at the same time, social media is a really critical, important space of sharing and learning. And so I wonder if you could talk a bit about how you've come to think about social media as a site of dialogue. And Well, I'm on Facebook pretty regularly, and I have about 15,000 people right. following me, and I don't block anybody. So it's very possible to survive on Facebook without blocking people. Right. But one thing I know, you know, there's always going to be, especially, you know, in my case, the trolls that I have to deal with are Zionists, right? So they mm-hmm. come on and they're like, you know, you're a capo, you would put your grandmother in a boxcar, you know, they do all that stuff. And at a certain point, I realized, like, so what? Mm-hmm. Like, if I wait long enough, it's just going to scroll down. Right. Like, right, so right, what? Right. Somebody said something that I wish they didn't say, you know, it goes away. So once I realized that, I didn't need to block anybody. The thing that I like about Facebook is that there's a record. Right. There's a record of what people actually said. Mm-hmm. And there's witnesses to it. Right. And so that's, that's very, very helpful, you know. And certainly in terms of information, I mean, what's going on in Gaza right now, if it wasn't for Facebook, I, you know, the, the New York Times is basically just printing what the Israeli government says right. and claiming that that's news. Mm-hmm. If I was dependent on the New York Times, I wouldn't know anything. But that I can see what Palestinians post every day. And without that, I would have not have the information that I have. So it's it's crucial. I also had an experience of using it as leverage recently. I, I was solicited by a very mainstream magazine to write an article, and they wanted me to take out the words Muslim and abortion. And we had three rounds where I wouldn't take it out, and then I went on Facebook. And I posted that this was happening, and so many people reposted it that it ended up in the feeds of these people. And they ended up calling me and we, you know, mm-hmm. we worked it out. So, right. uh, you know, it, it, it gives people like me who don't have an official platform, right. a, you know, a place to really be heard. 
Right. Hmm. This is really challenging because I'm so the the kind of language that that I have um, heard and used sometimes around like the logic of blocking is this like language of um, of self protection. And so, uh, and of uh, the protection or the sense of, um, you know, um, reserving your your energy for engaging with, um, you know, um, or or refusing to to sort of do the emotional and intellectual labor of engaging with people who espouse supremacist ideologies. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm curious um, what. Um, what you sort of think about, because um, in particular, there's this way that um, uh, marginalized groups and, and communities often end up um, having to do this work of, um, you know, of engaging, um, you know, trolls and so on. And, um and so I'm, I'm curious about how can we navigate marginalized groups' reservations about taking on the labor of, of engaging and informing? And is, is, is the language of labor the right language? And, and so how can we think through that um, reservation in, in the context of what you're saying about, um, you Well, know, I think if someone is, is posting on your wall and that person is driving you crazy, just ignore them. Right. Like you don't have to read what they say, and if you have a if you have constituted a community, other people will address them. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's going to drive you crazy, don't do it. But what's really interesting, uh, I recently uh, the Rhonda Gerard case. I don't know if mm-hmm. you've been following that. She's a queer Palestinian novelist who's a professor, I think, at Fresno State. And when Barbara Bush died, she tweeted that she was a racist and that her that Barbara Bush's husband and son were both war criminals, evoking the dead of the Iraqi, you know, de- uh, Iraqi people. And mm-hmm. she got bombarded with uh, right wing stuff. And she wrote incredibly bold stuff. And it, the complaint was filed and her quest, her tenure was in jeopardy and all of this, mm-hmm. but she, she won. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was, was really incredible because she really showed that, professor or teacher is a job it's not an indentured lifestyle and the university does not own you 24 hours a day right right and although Stephen salida did lose his job at the university of illinois based on a personal tweet because he was the object of a vicious zionist named carrie nelson but you know overall we shouldn't be cowed by that sort of thing and she really stood up to triumph so you know it's it's important to keep us making assertions, but if it's personally damaging to you, just ignore it. I have one final question for you, and um, it's uh, a question about um, what you're working on now. If there are any other um, any future projects in the works, and are is there anything that you're reading right now that you're finding really exciting or thought provoking? Well, I just read the galley for Matilda Bernstein Sycamore's new novel called Sketch to See, and I think it's mm. incredibly well written. It's mm-hmm. it's incredible writing, so I was very excited about that. I'm always working on so many projects at once. Right. I have a detective novel coming out in September called Maggie Terry, and it's a mm-hmm. it's published by the Feminist Press. It's about it's really a based on my experience teaching on Staten Island for 20 years and having a lot of students who are related to the NYPD or COs at Rikers Island or Port Authority, right. and listening to them, how they, how they view things, what their logic system is. And this book is really about that, but it's mm-hmm. written as a detective novel so people can have fun while they're reading it. And then after that, I have a new nonfiction right. that won't be out till for about three years um, it's coming out from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, and it's called Let the Record Show, mm-hmm. Act Up, and the Enduring Relationship of AIDS. Mm-hmm. And it's really about who actually were the people in ACT Up, because it's been very uh, mishistoricized as a white organization, a white male organization. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's not true. And I've interviewed 187 surviving members of ACT Up. 
So it's about who were these people really, what did they really do, and how did they do it, and what methods and strategies did they use that were effective that could be helpful to us today. Mm-hmm. So that's, but that's about three years from now. Mm-hmm. And then I'm collaborating with Marianne Faithful. Do you know who that is? No, I don't. Right, because you're under 40. But for older people, they will know she was an icon of British pop and rock. Uh, she w- became a, a star when she was 16 in 1964. And she was Mick Jagger's girlfriend for many years. Mm. And then after many years of drug addiction, she broke out of all of that and became an incredible artist, solo artist. And her work is mm. just spectacular. So now she's 71. And we're collaborating on a live stage piece. She won't be in it, but it uses her life's work, uh, 50 years of her songs. So very excited about that. Oh, my goodness. That's so exciting. Yeah. If you if you feel like it, listen to her album, Broken English. That's really one of her best albums. But she has a lot of wonderful work. I definitely will. I'm always looking for new music. So thank you. Um, So thank you so much for such a wonderful conversation. Um, We've been discussing conflict is not abuse, overstating harm, community responsibility, and the duty of repair. Thank you so much, Sarah. 